you did not get, uh, if you don't have an email and didn't get a copy through email, um, we can make paper copies available to you. If you would just ask for one, ask me or one of our, our, our leaders, and we will uh, get a paper copy of both of those to you. Uh, we prefer to do it over email because it's less paper for us, but if you want a paper copy, you're certainly entitled to have one. Also, on the bulletin board in the lobby is uh, a, a copy of both the Constitution and the proposal, so you can see the paper copy there if you'd like. We ask that you not remove it from that board, but you can look at it and refer to it. And then if you want your own copy, either by email Email make the request to, to Heidi. She'll put you on our email list. This is for members only. And then if you want a paper copy, uh, you can ask um, any one of our leaders. They'll let me know, so we'll make a, a copy for you. All right. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Mark chapter 10. I invite you to turn there with me in your Bibles. We'll be reading that entire chapter. If you don't have a Bible, uh, raise your hand. Our ushers will bring a Bible to you that you can use throughout our uh, service this morning. Let's all stand in respect to the reading of God's holy word. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 52. I'll read aloud and ask you to look along with me as I read. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around him and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house 
or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last and the last first and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid and taking the twelve again he began to tell them what was to happen to him saying see we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great, multi and a great crowd... Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart. Get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. May God give us understanding the section of scripture that we read and be preaching from this morning. We pause now for a word of prayer. I invite you to remain standing with me and to bow in a word of prayer. And after prayer, our choir will come with the special music and then the preaching of God's word today. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for waking us up and allowing us to begin this day to... Um, Many of us, as we prepared, looking forward to coming and worshiping, and fellowshipping with believers, and just having another time to be together and to hear from your word and to share together. We pray that you would bless our communion, bless our fellowship together, that you might make it healthy and that which is of benefit to, uh, a mutual benefit to each one involved. We thank you for our birthdays today and for our anniversaries. We thank you for, for those who um, you've given another year uh, to live, 
another year of marriage together. We just thank you for, for those who, uh, who have been faithful. We thank you for, for Lawrence and for Charmone and for their 12 years of, of marriage together. We thank you for Andy and his birthday and Naomi and her birthday. And we just rejoice with them as we celebrate the years that you've given to each. We, we rejoice to see development and growth and faithfulness as we have seen uh, over the years. And we thank you for that. We thank you for Nevaeh's birthday last week and just those who celebrate this month. And, and uh, we just give you the praise and give you the honor and the glory for what you have done. We thank you for John back with us, Lord, and just healing him as, as he has suffered the, with uh, just asthma that he goes through. We thank you for him uh, bearing the cup that you've given him and, and just being faithful in it. And uh, we pray for others, Lord. I think of my dad, and thank you, Lord, that he's feeling better this week, and we pray that you just continue to sustain him, be with him, and watch over him. Give him grace for the life that you have, the cup that you have for him you might your grace might be in that cup as well and we know that it will be and we pray for that so now we pray lord for clear teaching and preaching of your word and that your holy spirit will uh, move in our hearts to rightly respond to your truth and that you would get the glory in our lives we thank you in jesus name amen and please be seated We progress in our series now in Mark and approach Mark chapter 10. I've entitled this chapter, The Throne and a Cup. The Throne and a Cup. It starts off with Jesus doing what he's been doing in his ministry and going from town to town and teaching, teaching about the kingdom. And as he's teaching, he encounters a group of Pharisees, and we know that they are increasingly hostile to God. And they come for the purpose of challenging Jesus. They're hostile to Jesus. They, I say to God, because if you're hostile to Jesus, you're hostile to God. You don't accept Jesus, then you don't accept God. You struggle with Jesus, then you will struggle, and you will not have relationship with God. And so it says here that they ask him a question, but they ask the question with the intent of testing him or entrapping him, getting him to say something that would uh, be some fodder, some ammunition for them to use against him. And so they think they're going to ask a difficult question. This question concerns divorce, or at least in their mind, they're going to talk about divorce. And they ask the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus' response starts with this. What does Moses command you? There's very much that we should understand simply from that response. What does the word of God say? Don't run from person to person for their opinion, but run to the word of God for what he says. And so Jesus begins to teach concerning the Word of God. Now they claim to know the Word of God because they, they say, when he asked them, what does it say? He says, well, Moses made it possible for us to, for a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Jesus' response is, this is because of the hardness of your heart. In other words, it's not God's intent to break up family and to break up home. He intends for marriage to reflect his image and his glory. That's a powerful statement. Jesus goes on to show how that is, in fact, true. I want you to realize 
that marriage is planned and instituted by God, and he has a purpose in it. Now today, we want to take things out and we want to use our purpose in it, or we want to, to serve our purpose in those things. It said the title of this was A Throne and a Cup. And it really talks about selflessness. Selflessness. The biggest problem in marriage today is self-centeredness. That's the biggest issue in marriage. And you can imagine that would be the biggest challenge because marriage is about two people becoming one. It's not about me, me, me anymore. It's about us. And the purpose of that us is to bring glory to God or to reflect God's image. And this is how Jesus brings that out. He says, in the beginning, you see that starting at verse 6, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. So he begins to discuss what God did and what God's purpose was. And he says, from the beginning, or in the beginning, God created them and made them male and female. If you look in Genesis 1.26, it's that verse that talks about God. God said, let us make man. Let's make him in our image after our likeness. Can we turn there for a second? I think that's a very important verse. You would wonder, what does this have to do with marriage? But it does. Jesus refers to it. Genesis 1.26 said, Then God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the, of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God created man in his image. And he says, male and female, he created them. And he's explaining then that there is this sameness and there is this distinct distinction, but they are to give glory to God. And in fact, they reflect the image of God. And he says, that's male and female. In other words, there's something about the male and female together that reflect the glory of God. Now, you would think that's just in God's creation, but Jesus applies this specifically towards marriage because he understands God's purpose and God's idea. That God, God's image is shown especially in marriage, when a man and a woman come together and rightly display the image of God. Now, in practical ways, we can see that God intends for children to, be, to, be, to, to live under, in a home under mom and dad and that they have the benefit of both of those perspectives and that these two perspectives display the image of God. I want you to notice what Jesus says. I don't have uh, uh, time to devote all this, and that's probably where we ought to do, uh, uh, um, do a conference or do a, 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 a teaching devoted to marriage sometime this year and focus on that. But what he says here, in verse 7 of our text, Mark chapter 10, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And so he, he's showing God's intention in that home. And he goes on later on when, he, when, he, when he's in private with his disciples. They ask him further the question about this because it kind of it um, bothers them. That Jesus didn't give this 
he didn't give this way for divorce and, 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 and think that that was something that was, that was just accepted or okay. In fact, what he does is he reiterates God's purpose in marriage. And he says that man shouldn't separate what God has joined together. In other words, in a practical way, divorce should be avoided at every cost. In every case, it should be avoided. And he says, because of the purpose of God. Now he goes on to say, when they're in the house, he says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Now you would expect him to stop there. Because he applies, because that was the case in their culture. Usually it was the man who said, I don't want this no more, and I'm out. She, for whatever reason, I find fault in her. I want a new one is basically what he's saying. But Jesus applies it equally to the wife as well. And he says, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Jesus is, is showing the equality of the two. And he doesn't bow down to the, to, to the trends of his day or to the culture of his day and say the man is, 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 is the only one who has this unique uh, um, ability or, or can separate in a marriage, but says he, he recognizes that the woman in that as well, but he acknowledges her sin as well if she does that. Now going back to the beginning, he says they are... This is what God has joined together. It's interesting that it's the uniqueness and the union of those two in marriage that reflects the glory of God. And in a very practical way, we see that God has given both of those characteristics um, that, that come and show. You, we, we wonder um, why God calls himself Father and yet, he portrays the traits of both father and mother. We see him as a, a, a father who teaches, who disciplines his children, uh, uh, who supports and, and who protects his children. But we also see him as the one who nurtures, who loves, and, 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 and brings up his children. And the reason for that is that that's the image of God is, is, is both of those. And it takes two of us to portray that image, to get it right, so to speak. It takes both sides of that husband and that wife to, to reflect correctly in a proper balance the image of God and to have the benefit of that in the home. Jesus points that out. I notice what he says about this male and this female, and we, we, we understand a little bit of, 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 of what is spoken of there. But he's saying that they have two, both are human beings. They're the same in terms of, of, of their essence and, and, and who they are. They're human beings, but they're not the same. They're not exact copies of each other, but they're complements to each other. And it says in this complementary union, it displays the image of God. Marriage is a joining of two to display the image of God. So this male and female speaks of a complement to each other. The, the union, the joining of two together. And if we look at different things in, in our own lives, we'll see how important that is. I'm a person who likes uh, doing work at home, I do carpentry, do all types of, of things. In fact, I've got a project at home that I'm working on now. And, and when you look at uh, uh, carpentry, or for instance, when you look at hardware, you can see the joining of a, of a bolt and a nut. In fact, we use the characteristics of male and female to talk about that union coming together. And it is a graphic representation, and in fact, it, it depicts the sexual union as well. But it talks about something that's even more than that. And it talks about the fact that they have now become one. And one of the most important things in life is the junction or the union of two. Whether that's in a nut and a boat, if you were repairing something just recently, 
uh, my wife was driving her car and, and she had a, a, a mishap, had, a, had a, something come loose under the car. I think it was a tie rod that was broken. When a tie rod is broken, you see the wheels that should be straight and then one is just cocked off to the side and it ain't right. Things usually happen at the weak spot. The weak spot or, or, or where you look at is the joining of two things together. It's the joint that is affected. And, and we see that uh, in a mechanical way in our cars. We see that, I see it in carpentry. We talk about miter joints that we make in wood. We talk about butt joints. We talk about uh, 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 um, different types of joints of joining two pieces together glued joints and joints that are nailed together and screwed together. And so we see that it's the joining of those two things that really defines the whole. In fact, if you want to look at something that's made with quality, look at the joints. If you want to look at something that is beautiful, you look at how well the joints fit together and how closely knit they are. You want to look at the image of God, you will look at two, a male and female, who are joined together in marriage and display then the image of God. God intends for us. He shows he intends for us to reflect his image. He shows that it's not a perfect world. Some people think that if their marriage is imperfect, then that gives them the right to abandon it. God shows that we all have to work at that, the joining of two pieces together. It takes a lot of work. As a carpenter, I recognize most of my work goes into the joints of things. If I'm doing drywall, you know, you want your wall to look seamless. And when those two joints meet, they need to be put together in such a way they're taped over and they're, they're mudded over with compound and they're sanded and they're sanded again and compound again and sanded again with great skill until when they're primed and painted, you don't see that anymore. It's seamless. It, the two have become one. But I'm reminding you it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of skill to be able to make those two blend together at once. So that's the cosmetic part of it, but there is the, the, the tensile, the physical, the uh, strength part of it. The joints are often the weak point. We know with the, within our bodies, arthritis and our knees and our elbows, we hear, we hear cracks and noises that come from our joints. They show where we are, you know. It's interesting that a person can have muscle tone, but it's the joints that's going to get tested and tell you when your body says, no more. You used to be able to jump. It ain't so much the jumping, it's the landing that affects us. The wear and tear on the joint is what we see, but we see beauty in the joint. We see it in our sewing. The seams of something tell us the quality of what's being made. We see that, I notice in the automobile industry, if you want to look at a paint job and you want to look at something, a car that's been restored, one of the first things you look at is the gaps. In other words, where the front uh, the back fender meets the door. You want to see, or where the two doors meet, you want to see that the gap is equal between the two. You want to see that the joint fits well together. And mechanics and body people spend a lot of time making those things just right. That should remind us of how much work it takes for a relationship to be done right. It takes a lot of skill and a lot of care. Jesus says it's this joining that should not be taken for granted. It needs to be worked at. Don't rush toward divorce. He's saying look at, invest yourself in time in putting the, the two together. That's the hardest part of a thing. That's where we're going to expect to see the wear and tear.
again in the construction field. We're getting work done on our roof here at the church very soon, we hope. That's because joints expose weakness. And water comes in and seeps, seeps through those joints. Wherever you have a joint in your roof, if you have a, a, a chimney, you're going to have the roof joining that vertical surface. And that's a spot where you can have trouble. It's a spot that you need to give attention to. It's a testing of those joints. We do caulking because the joints need constant work. And so it is in our relationships. It's the joining of those two. Jesus says, when God is joined together, let not man separate. Here at Sweet Communion, we've committed ourselves to our marriages. We've committed ourselves to building those marriages on the principles that God has. We know that takes a lot of work. Today, we congratulate Lawrence and Charmone in 12 years together. I remember 12 years ago this day. I remember wanting to make that day special and so many things that were going on and how special it was for two young people to want to commit their lives to each other and commit their lives to the Lord and to see that continue, to see that grow, to see the beauty of that over these 12 years. We praise God for that. So Jesus speaks about that. Then right away, right after that, he speaks about children. You notice that? They were bringing children to him, and the disciples rebuked them. And Jesus, he uses a word here, it's used twice in this, in this chapter. In verse 14, it says, when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. That's a pretty strong word, indignant. He was upset. It doesn't tell us the words that he used, but he was upset with his disciples for not allowing children to come to him. And he says, allow the children to come to me and stop restraining them. And then he uses that to teach them. And so he welcomes the children. And then he teaches concerning children. He, he uses children as an example to teach about the kingdom. He says, for such to such belong the kingdom of God. In other words, you need to be like a child to be a part of God's kingdom. And I think he's speaking of their childlike trust and faith and how they come to God and without restraint and that they don't have the hang-ups of can I trust God today? And oh, now I'm in something new and can I trust him now? It's interesting that children are not self-centered in that way when it comes to trust. They have a childlike faith, and yet they are self-centered in their development as they, they can't help but to think of themselves. But he uses that as an example. The next incident in this chapter we see in uh, his encounter with the rich young man. I notice a couple things about this. The, the man has a respect for Jesus. He, he kneels before him and he calls him good teacher. And he refers to him again later on as teacher. Has a, a respect for him. But we notice Jesus' response. He says, why do you call me good? Now Jesus isn't saying that he's not good. He's examining this man's motives and his understanding. Why do you call me good? Why can you call anybody good? He says, there's no one good but God. In essence, he's saying, look, either you need to understand why I'm good and why it's proper for you to call me good is because I am, in fact, God. Jesus is of divine nature, and it's proper to call him good, but don't just flippantly use a word or a term that, in other words, you can't use that term towards the next person or anybody else in the same way. Only God is good. If you're going to show that respect to me, acknowledge who I really am. Don't just try to flatter me with words. And he says to the man, you know the commandments. 
the man's asked a question. He says, how can I, what can I do, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus challenges the man, first of all, why you call me good? And he says, you know the commandments. And he repeats the basic commandments to him. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And the man says, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. <laughs> he loved him. Shows his genuine concern. Here's the man who was looking for answers, but he did not understand. Jesus points him to the law. He points him to the word of God. And then he begins to expose that man to his own sinfulness. He challenges with the law, but the man thinks that he has kept the law from his youth. Then Jesus begins to illustrate what the law requires. And he's going to illustrate by challenging this man. He's going to illustrate that the law requires perfection. So he takes a man who thinks he's been obedient to the law. And we have people that today like that. They think that they have kept the law from a young age. So Jesus says, okay, all right. But you lack one little thing. <laughs> you lack one thing, he tells the man. In other words, you think you kept the law, but let me show you what you don't know about yourself and what you lack. He says, sell all that you have and give to the poor. Because you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. I want you to notice what he says to the man. Because people claim to follow that today. They claim to sell what they have and give to the poor. But Jesus says that's not enough. If you were to sell what you have, give to the poor, recognize that you have treasure in heaven, then he says the, the, the essential, come follow me. Because the people today who many people give to charities... And they think that qualifies them. But Jesus said, don't just give, follow. Give and follow. So many people want to, the people who have means especially, want to use their money and give of their money but don't want to give of themselves. Jesus says, give all and then follow me. This man would do, do neither. He would do neither. Notice his reaction. He was sad. He was discouraged. It's like he knew within himself, I can't do that. I ain't going there. I'm in trouble. There's no way I'm going to do all that. That's exactly what Jesus wanted him to see. There's no I can do that. He wants him to see. In fact, Jesus begins to emphasize with him he says in verse 23, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Notice the disciples' response. They're just like the man. They were amazed at his words. They were amazed at Jesus' word. Really, Jesus? Is that the standard? You it's like they want to go back and get that man and say, hey, you could be a part of our team. You got stuff to offer here. He said, no, no, nope. You think he's a morally upright person, but Jesus says, no, you haven't come far enough. Sell everything that you've got. Give to the poor. Come and follow me. They're amazed at that. Jesus is illustrating that what this man has to offer, he doesn't go far enough. Notice when Jesus says, you know the commandments, and he begins to start with some of those commandments, but you remember when Jesus summarized the commandments of what he said? Here's the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with everything that you have. You see, Jesus is making this man know he has not kept God's law. And in fact, he's saying no one has. Why? because it's impossible to keep. So Jesus makes a statement to his disciples. How difficult it is for a man who has possessions to 
get into the kingdom. They, they thought, many people today think, oh, okay, well, he's just talking about the rich. We understand that. Rich ain't going to be there. We, and, you know, in our culture today, we kind of like uh, putting thumbs down on certain people. And they were okay with that. But Jesus makes it clear, no, it ain't just the rich. He says, verse 24, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I think we can understand from this that those who, who, who think that they have and hold on to whatever it is they have and won't give it up, they find it impossible to get into the kingdom of God. Now, in fact, that's all of us. It's interesting. We deal with people oftentimes who seem to have nothing. I see people begging and having signs on the corner all the time asking for this or asking for that. We get a chance to talk to them. I, I direct them to where they can go. But you know what? They don't want to go there. They don't, you know why they don't want to go there? They're rich in pride. And we don't see that all the time. They are rich in pride. I ain't going where somebody's going to be telling me what to do, what I can't do, what time I got to go to bed, what I'm going to eat today. I ain't going there. I would rather sleep in filth than to follow somebody's direction. Rich in pride. This is a picture of all of us. And Jesus is just breaking it down to this man. You got some pride there. Notice what he says. Sell all you have. Come and follow me. And he breaks down with the disciples and says, it's impossible. And they ask questions. Well, then who can be saved? Man, God is what they're saying. How, how, what kind of thing you got going here? Jesus says, can I paraphrase, with all men it's impossible. With anybody it's impossible. No matter who you are, rich or poor, it's impossible because we are all rich in sin. And it calls for us to turn from whatever we have and turn to God. And until we challenge to do that, we don't always see our unwillingness to do it. And this man saw, I think for the first time, his unwillingness because Jesus skillfully laid it out to him. All right? Here's what's going to require for you. Give up everything and follow me. And he wouldn't do it. In fact, he couldn't do it. Jesus says, look, with God, it is possible. In other words, it takes a miracle for a person to come in their heart to be turned to God. We ain't talking about it takes a good preacher, a good message, and a good sermon. No, it takes a miracle for that to happen. So if it's happened in your life, you can thank God for the miracle that he has done in your heart and your life. It's a miracle. It's not just a miracle for somebody who's rich. It's not just a miracle for somebody in some other state. It's a miracle that only God can do for every person that comes there. Jesus says, with God, all things are possible. Now notice Peter's response. He says, Lord, we, we've left everything and we followed you. And that's true. They had left everything. And they had followed Jesus. In fact, they were the examples of, of hearts who had turned to God. A miracle God called them and they followed. What does Jesus say to them? He says, truly I say to you, there is no one who's left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who would not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Now that's a, that's a, that's a confusing statement. It, it was seen. Wait a minute, Jesus. You're saying in this world I'm going to get all that? He says, yes. You know how you get it? He says, those who follow Jesus have given up all those things and come to him. You know how we get it back? Right here. Right here. Jesus said, 
this is my family. This is your houses. This is your mother, your father, your sister and brother that you turned from in the world because you turned to Christ and you turned from them and they actually turned from you as well. But God has brought you into another. And here it is. It's the family of God. He says, this is what you receive. In other words, there is a present benefit for trusting and following Christ right now. There's a present benefit. And we live in it and we enjoy it right here. But that's not all of our benefit. And thank God for that. I love this benefit, but this doesn't define everything. This isn't all that we have. We got a whole lot more coming than just this is what he's saying. But notice what he, he says. You will have receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers. and Look, how do I have a hundredfold house? Because if I'm rejected by my bank at my house, I'm coming over your house. <laughs> I am. I am. God's people will provide for me. Now, there's a caution in that. They're going to insist that I walk according to his way. If I say, hey, you know what? I just let the bank possess my house because Jesus is coming. I ain't got to work no more. Okay, brother, can you give me $20? Paul said, no, it don't work like that. It don't work like that. But he said, when you have people who have been faithful serving the Lord and they're in need, God's people will take them up. God's people will provide for them. So they have houses and land and brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. And God has given us that through this connection. But he also says with persecutions, he recognizes that this ain't all you got. You got a lot of trouble on this side of heaven, and we recognize that. And, but that's the good news. This ain't all of the benefit. This is just, just a part of it. Isn't it good to know there's benefit with walking with Christ on this side? We know the persecution, so that really doesn't bother us. We got that all. We got that anyway. <laughs> now you got a solution for that. But Jesus is just saying to his disciples, you done well. And God's going to take care of you. God's going to take care of you. Jesus foretells of his death the third time. We see that in verses 32 to 34. And we see he just plainly teaches them, look, this is what's going to happen. They were going up to, he says to them, verse 32, we're going up to Jerusalem. We're on our way there. If you can look on the map, you see they started by the Sea of Galilee, which is the northern part, and they have circled around. They have come down south, and now they, they ventured over to the other side of the Jordan, and now they're on their way. They're going to hit Jericho in just a moment, and they're keeping, they're venturing steady on their path to Jerusalem. Jesus told them where they're going and what's going to happen. We're on our way to Jerusalem. Here's what's going to happen when we get there. He says, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. What will they do? They'll condemn him to death. They will deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Jesus is specific, and it happened just that way. Jesus knows at this time the specifics what's going to happen. He knows where He knows where it's going to happen in Jerusalem. He knows when it's, it's coming up very, very soon. And then he says this in three days after he shares this truth. Now he knows the disciples don't get it all. They can't take it all in, but he shares that with them. So after they look back at what has happened and what he has said, they'd recognize him. And God does that, that with us today. He, he lets us know truth of his word. He gives us the truth and then sometimes we look back at it and we recognize how true God is, how faithful he is to his word. When we get to a couple of the incidences, we see the request of James and John. Notice the arrogance of their, their request. They say, teacher. And then they ask the teacher to do whatever they ask. Doesn't that just sound strange? Teacher, here's what you got to do. Really? Can you say teacher and then do this at the same time? But that's what they do. We also see the ignorance of their request. They say, grant to us 
one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. Now, they don't mention the word throne, but I've entitled this the cup and the throne. I think this whole chapter is about selflessness. It takes selflessness to live in a marriage. That selflessness is modeled by children, and that's how we are to become as we come to trust Christ. Not concerned about all those intricate details of life that trouble us so often, but like a child just knowing, Dad's going to take care of it. Mom's going to take care of it. God's going to take care of it. And then we see with the rich man who came to Jesus that it's impossible to be focused on self and material things to come to God. God says it requires a selflessness to trust in him. That's what faith is about. I understand and I trust God no longer have to look out for myself. God is looking out for me. He, he will take care of me, and I can walk faithfully because of that. Then we see this request of James. Uh, they're saying, Lord, we want you to honor us. We want you to promote us. We want you to sit us on your side, your right and your left. And Notice the disciples' reaction. It says they became indignant when they heard that. And we, we, that word reminds us, because we've seen it earlier in the chapter, that Jesus was indignant when the disciples refused to have the children come to, to them, come to him. Now these disciples are indignant when one in their group promotes themselves above the others. That's what they become indignant. It often shows where our heart is, our selfish nature, that we want the glory to ourselves. We want the honor to ourselves. It shows the contrast with Jesus' nature, doesn't it? He's indignant when they mistreat and do not bring children to him. They're indignant when they're left out of the glory picture, when they're left out of the honor. Jesus gives a teachable moment. Whoever will be great among you must be your servant. Whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. And then he gives a point. Selflessness. Selflessness. Verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He's the son of man. He's on his road to Jerusalem. He's sharing with the disciples what's going to happen when he gets there, and he's also taking the time out to teach them how to live that selfless life of faith and trusting in him. And they have many illustrations of how they missed that. Marriage is difficult because it calls for us to live in a selfless way and means. You can't just live selfless and not trust Christ and then reflect the image of God in your marriage. You've got to do it for right reasons. You've got to do it because you are honoring God. Jesus' interaction with blind Bartimaeus. So Jesus enters Jericho, he's leaving Jericho, and the other gospels say there's, there's two blind men, and, and yet Mark just depicts this one, and he gives us the name. His name is Bartimaeus, and, and uh, he's there, it looks like he's got his coat spread out. We see people like that today, right? They have a hat or a bucket or a coat or whatever, um, and they're looking for the gifts of others. And, and this is, this is uh, Bartimaeus, and you know, if you're blind, you don't have a means. You can't, you can't really work like, like healthy people would. And so he has a, a need. And so um, he, you can tell he hears 
the commotion of people coming through, important people, he would think. And so there's a parade, so to speak. Jesus and, and those who follow him are gone through Jericho, and he comes to understand that this party is Jesus himself. Can you imagine that? He's never seen Jesus. He's blind. He's heard of him, and now in his city, Jesus has come. And not just in his city, but he's walked down the same street. And you can kind of have a sense that Bartimaeus is there and, and, and the crowd has passed him by. And he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now the people, you know kind of how we do, they want to keep the streets clean. Keep this guy quiet, push him to the side, um, and let Jesus come through. But he makes, he makes a commotion, and they say, quiet down, man, quiet down. But all the louder he calls and cries out for Jesus. I want you to see it's not just this man acting a fool. This is his faith, that he knows that Jesus is one who can heal him. He's heard about it, and now... He has an opportunity to interact with Jesus. What great faith he has. He calls, he cries out for Jesus, and Jesus stops. You get the sense that Jesus has, has passed by, and there's a lot of commotion going on, a lot of noise, but he hears that voice of Bartimaeus, and he says, wait, 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 let's stop. Who is that? He says, go call him. They call and tell Bartimaeus, okay, man, you can, you can quiet down. He's, he's recognized you. He's asked for you. He's bringing you to him. And he asks Bartimaeus a peculiar question, doesn't he? What do you want? Again, that question takes us back in the chapter again because it's the same question that he asked James and John. What do you want? What do you want? James and John says, hey, teacher, we want you to do whatever you ask, whatever we ask you to do. You ever ask somebody, hey, do me a favor? I never say yes. I say what Jesus said, what do you want? You know why? Because I don't know that I can do that. And as it turns out, Jesus doesn't do the request, doesn't, doesn't grant the request of James and John. In fact, they say, we want to sit at your side. And, and uh, he says, you don't know what you're asking. And he asked him a question. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? And are you able to, to, to have the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? And they say, yeah, we are. Now, they don't understand what he's talking about, but they say, yeah. And Jesus teaches a point. Yeah, you will. You will. What does he mean? He says, look, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. I'm going to be put to death. I'm going to be persecuted, and I'm going to give my life. But you're not thinking about that. You're just thinking about the honor that you can have. And he says, in fact, you will drink the cup. The same cup that I drink. He's foretelling of the death that James and John will have. And in fact, they did have. Jesus said, you are going to die living for me. They didn't know it, but Jesus told them that, in fact, what's going to happen. This is their cup. I gave you a cup. Did you know that? You have a cup. God, in his sovereign ways, has included things in your life that are not pleasant. I'm not here telling you what that cup is. I don't know. There's something, you can keep praying. There's some things that you're praying for God's going to grant. There's some things that he's not. You have a cup. God wants you to willingly take that cup. But not to earn an honor. He says to James and John, you just don't know what you're asking for, and I'm not going to grant that request. 
That's for the Father to grant. And it says, it's interesting, he'll give that to those who is prepared for it. And that gives you an idea. God has, has some things set aside for his servants. But this whole passage, I think, is about that selfless service. Their initial, their initial motive was not selflessness. In fact, when the disciples heard about it, they were quite mad at them. Their motive was personal honor. Honor me, Jesus. Let me be honored with you. Jesus says, look, there's coming a time where I will honor you with me. And I'll choose the time and what exact honor you'll get. But right now, you got a cup. So we should be praying, Lord, help me endure in this cup that I have. By the way, your cup ain't the same as the person next to you. It's not. Don't complain about that cup. Don't compare that cup. Ask God for the grace to endure. I with James and John, they were just looking at the honor. The beauty of Bartimaeus, he's saying, Lord, when Jesus says, what would you, what do you want from me? The same question that James, that he asked James and John. James and John said, honor. Bartimaeus said, mercy. Just mercy. Have mercy on me, Father. Have mercy on me, Jesus. If you would just restore my sight. Jesus did restore his sight. He says, look, your faith has made you whole. And it says, Bartimaeus began to follow him on the road. You see that? Now, James and John were following Jesus. And I don't know, maybe they felt, maybe like the question that Peter asked, hey, Jesus, we, we giving up a lot. What what, what we going to have? Maybe, maybe they thought some way in that way. Jesus says, <laughs> in essence, be like the child who just comes and believes and trusts and follows faithfully. Stop complaining about your cup. Now, Jesus didn't tell Bartimaeus that he had that cup. Maybe his cup was his blindness. I don't know. But James and John were going to bear a cup. I don't know what my cup is. I don't know what yours is but I know I can trust Jesus in it. And he's challenging me and you to serve as he served. The Son of Man didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to lay down his life. James and John would eventually, in fact, lay down their lives. I believe that they came to that proper recognition. They couldn't ignore what Jesus said. Yeah, you will drink of the same cup. And you can imagine after Jesus drank that cup, in other words, that cup is these encounters and the suffering and the death that Jesus would go through. And can you imagine what James and John thought after that? We got that cup. But I, I, would, I would imagine they had kind of worked through that by now. And they said, Lord, whatever your will and your purpose. Why? Because Jesus set that example before them. Remember, it was James and John that Jesus and Peter himself, Jesus took aside and, and at the Mount of Transfiguration, he showed them some of these things. They're probably with him in the, in, the, in the garden when Jesus says, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, your will be done. Jesus had modeled how we ought to bear the cup. The life the lifestyle, the burdens, the challenges. It could be sicknesses. It could be financial trouble. It could be family issues. It can be all sorts of things that God has in your path that he wants you to persevere and he wants you to trust him in it and be selfless and not selfish or self-centered. But more like Christ. Jesus Christ came to be served but to serve and in that service he became a payment on the cross he went willingly 
and he drank that cup. There's a throne and there's a cup. The fact is, we'll have both. <laughs> we will have both, but we don't dictate to God what's in our cup and when we're going to drink it. God says, that's my place. And trust me in it. I'll give you the grace and the strength to go through it. What's your cup? I would say, don't worry about it. <laughs> you can trust God with no matter what's in that cup. You can trust him for it. You can trust him in it. He wants you to endure and live faithfully for him. Father, we thank you for your word. It's hard for us to thank you for our cups, but we'll learn to. We'll learn to thank you for the grace that comes along with that cup. And thank you for the joy that we will receive when we endure that cup. Trusting that you have a blessing for us. Right now we want to be faithful to you and serve you faithfully, diligently. And that service means that we stop focusing on ourselves. We begin to look at how you'd have us to serve and how you'd have us to serve others. Give us that mindset. Encourage it in our hearts. And help us to set ourselves to that path that you have for us, relying on your grace, relying on your mercy, your goodness, your protection, your blessing. We pray this in Jesus' name.